Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to this episode of Matafile, where I had the pleasure of talking with the analyst, academic and translator, Mr. Shintaro Hara, on the insurgency in the deep south of Thailand. The deep south of Thailand, or the Thai border with Malaysia, is something I've been wanting to talk about ever since I did the episodes on the history and politics of Thailand. It's an insurgency that gets much less coverage than it's actually due because there is a population of disenfranchised Malay Muslims who occupy the area that is currently under political Thailand. It's an area that's been long neglected and our conversation talks about why developmental strategies implemented by an unstable government in Thailand are oftentimes incredibly ineffective at addressing people's grievances from the region itself. The Patani region is one of the poorest regions in Thailand, and we talk about the kinds of reform that are necessary to help the region recover, its cultural practices be acknowledged at a national level, and why the right to self-determination is incredibly important to most people in the area. Further, we talk on why liberation movements such as the BRN are oftentimes ineffective conduits for addressing and are quite ineffective even as proxies for general grievances expressed by most people in the Patani region. I also should preemptively apologize because the sound quality in certain segments of this interview is quite bad owing to poor internet connectivity on my end. Here's my conversation with Mr. Hara. Hello and welcome to this episode of Matafile, where today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Shintaro Hara, who is a scholar and a translator who's living in the Patani region of Thailand today and works on the Deep South Insurgency in Thailand. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. You're welcome. And nice to see you. Nice to see you. I think the place I want to start with is the history of the insurgency. So who are the Patani Malay Muslims? <laughs> what is their historic background? And why is there an insurgency in the deep south of Thailand today? Okay, um, it's a very big question. So now let me start uh, from the uh, kind of the historical background here. This region, or southernmost part of Thailand, used to have um, a Malay kingdom, and the status of it is uh, not very clear uh, whether or not this was an independent sovereign uh, country or not. Because um, this country, of course, has a, uh, their own uh, ruler, which is called Raja, right? Uh, but at the same time, they also sent a uh, tribune to the uh, Ayutthaya kingdom. So this is why the uh, Thailand or the Siam, Siam, uh, Siam kingdom claimed that this region has been their own uh, land. But for Malays, this is something unacceptable. 
because they regard this kingdom as an independent kingdom and invaded by Siamese and finally annexed and also colonized by them. So um, as a background, there are two, di uh, two different uh, ways of seeing uh, this region. From Thai point of view, this has been a part of Thailand from the uh, long past. But for Malays, this is their own land, which used to be an um, independent kingdom, which was uh, annexed and also colonized without any consent from the local people. So uh, this is, so to say, a kind of a historical background. And then um, <clears throat> this uh, part of the uh, world uh, was invaded by uh, Siamese in uh, 1785, um, <clears throat> more than 200 years ago. And then uh, since then, it was almost officially under the uh, control of Thai. But at that time, um, this region still kept some kind of a high level of autonomy. So even the uh, rulers must uh, be uh, you know, acknowledged by Thai, but they still have their own uh, uh, regional ruler. But after uh, the uh, Bangkok Treaty 1909, the borders between these two countries are demarcated. And since then, uh, this part has been uh, officially annexed into, Thai, uh, into Thailand, or the Kingdom of Siam at that time. From uh, the local uh, Malay Muslims' point of view, uh, this arrangement was done between two colonizers. One is a Thai, and the other one is a British. Right? So to say, the starting point of the uh, Thai governance in this region is uh, conducted without any assent from the local people. So this is why the uh, viewpoint to see this part of Lyon as a colonized uh, region still remains to this day. So this is a kind of a ideological back background. So after this uh, part of uh, land was uh, formally annexed into Thailand in the uh, early 20th century, uh, the local people continued to uh, struggle to fight against Thai dominance or Thai governance, uh, and they demanded a high autonomy. Their struggle has been had been uh, unsuccessful, and in some occasions almost brutally suppressed. Especially, uh, there is one uh, important figure uh, who is called Haji Sulon. He was a uh, religious leader in this region and also uh, politically participated in the movement of the people. So he submitted. Uh, uh, what is called as a, a seven demands for uh, high autonomy. And uh, since then, what happened to him was that he was charged and he was imprisoned and after release, he was abducted. This happened in 1954. Uh, so he disappeared since then. And then this could be one of the reasons that uh, drove the struggle of the Patani people into the uh, underground. And another thing is that, uh, so since then, uh, in the 1960s, the armed group began to be formed. So uh, there are several groups which still remain to this day, like the RM, Barisan Revolution National, or National Revolutionary Front, or PULO, Patani United Liberation Organization, and also BIPP, Barisan Islam from the Basan National, Patani Islamic Liberation Front, and so on. All of them are formed in this era, in the 1960s. 
And uh, what is more important is that uh, some of the uh, those, uh, founding fathers of this uh, organization used to be uh, member of parliament in this region. For instance, uh, one of the founding fathers of BRN is called Haji Amin. Uh, Haji Amin uh, is a son of Haji Sulon. That disappeared, you know, uh, forcibly disappeared with the uh, Muslim leaders in this region. And he ran for the election and he won almost landslide victory. And then he became an um, MP from this region. And he tried to broke the issue of this region, which had been uh, quite unsuccessful. And he was so disappointed and he was, so to say, threatened by the authority. And finally, he ran to Malaysia and become uh, one of the founding members of the BRN. And another example is uh, another man who was son of the last Raja of the Saiburi district. And he also ran for the MP and also he won from Narakwa province. <clears throat> so one or two times I think he won the election. And he tried to bring the issue uh, more actively uh, to the central government. And he sent letters uh, to the Prime Minister and then Prime Minister of Thailand and so on. And uh, in order to bring issue of the South to the central government, uh, which was never been, so to say, properly dealt with. And this disappointment also drove him to Malaysia, and he also established his own organization, which still exists to this day. So uh, these are the uh, historical background that, uh, at first, uh, Patani people tried to fight against the state by using the um, uh, democratic method or political method. But all their struggle uh, came into a um, blind alley, or there was no way out, which drove uh, many uh, local leaders, religious leaders, intellectuals, uh, and so on, and all, all these, those people to Malaysia, they formed their own uh, front or their own organization in order to fight against the state. And then it was also the starting point of the uh, armed struggle, which still continues to this day. So you mentioned that this was the start of the armed struggle of the Patani Malay Muslims. My question then is, um, if all these leaders fled to Malaysia, did the Malaysian government or the Malaysian parliament actively try persuading Thailand to allow this region more political power or to secede to Malaysia or to form its own independent region? This is a very uh, delicate matter. And uh, Malaysia also has a kind of uh, ambivalence uh, which they have to face. So first, uh, it has to keep a good relationship with Thailand, especially uh, as a member of the ASEAN. And also, in the past, these two countries uh, cooperated together in order to suppress the communists, which uh, crossed the border quite freely, right? But at the same time, it is also difficult for even almost very sensitive for the Malaysian government to push them back to Thailand, uh, so to say, to arrest them, because um, in Malaysia, there are quite a few people whose uh, ancestors are from Patani especially in the states like Kuantan, Pera, Kudah, and so on. In these states, there are quite a few people whose um, ancestors are from Patani uh, region. Also, Malaysian government has never been supporting uh, these activities in a very blatant, you know, so to say, blatant, um, very overt way. But at the same time, they allow them or turn blind eyes for these people staying here as long as they do not break the Malaysian rule. So for instance, if they try, for instance, if they try to make some connection with the uh, Jamia Islamia or ISIS or some groups which are regarded as a global terrorist, and then at that time, I'm sure that they, they will be ruled or they will have no chance anymore in Malaysia, right? 
So they, both sides have to be very careful in order to keep, so to say, status quo of the uh, circumstances. So uh, for me, it's still impossible for Malaysia to suppress these people. But at the same time, for the uh, insurgent, also for the insurgent, it's also very difficult for them to actively uh, operate in this region uh, without violating the uh, Malaysian law. The question then is, when did this struggle become armed? So you said that up until, say, the 1960s and the 1970s, the struggle was largely not an armed struggle. People were trying to access legitimate means of venting their grievances to the Thai government. What drove these mm-hmm. parties to then take up armed struggle and an armed conflict and then be termed an insurgency? Okay, so in this case, actually, the uh, armed struggle began in the 1960s, right? But at the same time, they, uh, there are some... Uh, there are some struggles on the ground as well. It doesn't mean that all the struggle suddenly come into the underground. So there are some parts of the struggle go into the uh, underground and uh, they stay the some uh, armed struggle. But at the same time, there are a struggle on the surface as well, like the example of the very uh, big demonstration, which has been uh, hugely neglected in the Thai history. But there was a very big demonstration in uh, 1975 in Patani. And at, the, uh, at one, uh, some peaks, it was joined by hundreds of thousands of people. And this is a very huge number because the entire population of Patani at that time is probably more than just about one million. So this was a really huge political movement. And this kind of movement continued almost to this day. So for instance, <laughs> you know, I think it was yesterday, there was a, a demonstration against the military government in Yana province, which was organized by the youth. So this, uh, even if there is a military struggle, it doesn't mean that the struggle on the surface will stop. So they also try to, Patani people, so to say, try to struggle or try to channel their problem by using several ways. So in my understanding, the uh, armed struggle or underground struggle is just one of the ways. And also it could be the main way, but as well, uh, at the same time, we cannot discard the existence of these uh, legal or democratic struggle on the surface. So in the Patani provinces today, do they still have a seat in parliament or are they not represented in the political sphere at all today? I, is there still an elected seat given to these mm-hmm. Patani districts or not? Yeah. So it's depending on the, uh, how the uh, central government can open to them. And in the past, there was a very huge group called Wadah Group, which is a group of a local Muslim Malay politicians which is quite influential. And then after that, uh, at one time, they become a very weak and uh, replaced by some other political parties. And then now they resurfaced again in the name of another party, which is called the Pacha Chat Party. So in this case, uh, it's also depending on the uh, extent of democracy in Thailand as well. So as you know, Thailand has so many coup d'etats, right? And the constitutions are often discarded, and also the uh, uh, parliament is also disbanded, and so on. So uh, we just had the latest election in 2018, so it was just very new. Before that, almost three to four years, I think, we had no uh, election whatsoever. And when this kind of uh, political space opens up, the Patani Malays, especially people from Patani, this region has three provinces, right? Patani, Lena, and Ratuar. And uh, all uh, people from all these provinces are ready to seize political, uh, political opportunities in order to send the representatives in the parliament. What does the 2019 election then mean for the province 
for these three provinces. What does Prayut Chanucha want with the people in these provinces? How does he plan on dealing with the insurgency in the Deep South? In terms of the election, there was a kind of kind of a split result. So uh, some constitutions are won by pro-government or pro-junta candidates, but uh, I think it's more than half of the constitutions are won by the opposition. But in terms of what uh, the current current prime minister wants to do with this region is very significant in the sense that he has changed the name of the peace process. The change happened in the name of the, in the Thai name. It used to be called as a peace process. So in Thai, it is called the Karabongkan Santipa. So here, the word Santipa means peace, literally peace. And then he changed. The, this word santipa in, into santisu, which means domestic happiness. You see, so it is quite clear for the current government to regard this as a totally internal problem, and if possible, they want to solve this problem without any interference from the foreign actors. And how do the multiple groups in the region feel about this change in rhetoric from the government? Because presumably there are small guerrilla groups that are leading an armed and a violent struggle, and then there's larger groups that are non-violent in nature as well. So how do different groups feel about this change of rhetoric from Prayut's government? In this case, I mean, I would like to stress that at this moment, um, of course, there are some several groups, but at the same time, there are some misunderstanding here. So, for instance, um, the term which may, uh, if you read something written on this reading, you may bump into the term RKK, right? So RKK is not an organization. This is the smallest uh, military cell of BRN. And BRN itself has a political section as well as a military section. So uh, I wouldn't say they are kind of a monolithic, but at the same time, it's quite wrong to see that this as a kind of a disorganized fraction. But in, uh, in actuality, in my opinion, it's quite organized. And recently it has been proved after the outbreak of COVID-19, BRN, uh, from, from one YouTube clip announced uh, one uh, unilateral ceasefire. And this has been effective almost to this day all over the conflict area, almost completely. Of course, there are some uh, skirmishes and also some retaliations. It's not completely stopped. But in comparison to the previous uh, time, the effect of the ceasefire announcement has been almost tremendous. It's almost incredible. So um, this, in my opinion, indicates that this is not done by the fraction of the small groups. Some people say that this is a network of the small groups. And also the uh, effectiveness of the uh, announced ceasefire is one of the uh, clear evidence to indicate that these armed groups also working under the strong coordination of a big organization. I could be wrong because they are basically underground organization. <laughs> this is my understanding. And if that is true, then surely the peace process becomes easier because you have a large political faction of the BRN with which the Thai government would probably be holding peace talks with. Has the creation of a political entity or a large body that has organized Patani grievances in the South made the peace process easier or made it more difficult? Okay, so as you said, if, if really BRN can be a political representative of the Patani people, it must be very easy for them to voice up the issues. And also the peace process must go uh, very smoothly, right? But the problem is that 
kind of a VRM is a kind of a organization which is using a remote control in Malaysia. So it's not like a, a organization which has their own territory and the people on the ground and also they can struggle on their own ground. But in case of Patani, the difficulty is that most of the readers live in deep abroad. Most of them in Malaysia and some of them might be in Sweden or maybe some other countries. Uh, we have no idea. But um, surely they are not in Thailand. So this is another problem. To what extent they can be a political representative of the local people? And uh, this is a kind of a challenge also for the BRN in order to constantly this aspect. In my opinion, so far, BRN has been successful, or at least they have been effective in the military struggle since uh, 2004, when the uh, recent um, wave of the violence erupted. But uh, on the other hand, since that time to this day, the political struggle has been very slow or very ineffective. So for this reason, I wanted to find, so to say, sustainable solution for this conflict. I suppose and I believe that the political, so to say, uh, political empowerment of the BRN is a kind of a necessary condition. I want to move slightly more towards the actual region and what is going on on ground in the Patani region because you of course live in the Patani region and you mentioned that there is a disconnect between the people on ground and the people in Malaysia that hold power. Yes. On ground, uh -huh. what is the economic situation of the Patani region like today? Is it economically much worse off than other regions in Thailand? If so, mm -hmm. why is this impoverishment there and what is being done to solve it? It's a very difficult question because it could be answered in many ways. So first, we cannot uh, dis uh, dismiss the impact of the COVID, right? So of course, you know, the, uh, it's not only here, but all over the country, uh, all over the world, <laughs> I would say. The economic situation has been uh, quite bad. But at the same time, I also conducted some interviews from the uh, civil society members and also the uh, local merchants and so on. And most of them agreed that the impact on this region is not as big as other parts of the country, except certain regions which has been largely dependent on the uh, border trade, like you know the border cities with Malaysia and heavily affected. But if you come come into this region, especially Patani province, which doesn't border with Malaysia, you can see that actually economic is. And I cannot you know I cannot present you the uh, uh, actual figure. But many people have a feeling that the economic activity has been more active. <laughs> and uh, many people try to seize the uh, opportunity for uh, waging on some, something new. So here, ironically, after the COVID, almost all other parts of the country has been affected. But in this region, it has a counter effect, so to say, something different happened. Because after the ceasefire, many people mentioned that regional uh, tourism has been developing. So there are many places with, uh, which had been um, inaccessible, now become accessible. And the people are ready to go there, going for camping, doing things and buying things and, you know, and so on. Mainly these areas located in the forest or in the mountainous regions and so on, remote areas where people used to fear to access because they are afraid of the violent incidents. But because of the uh, ceasefire, now, people can, uh, so to say, make a um, good plan and they are um, there to go certain places which they used to be afraid of. 
So uh, there are kind of, a, of course, you know, I wouldn't deny that you know, this is affected by the COVID and those are some other things. And also, uh, in general, this region has a very low income as well. But at the same time, I wouldn't say this is because of COVID, but there's a kind of a positive impact from that as well. But uh, in general picture, this region has been regarded as one of the poorest regions in the region. Uh, sorry, the poorest region in the country. And uh, the government tried to so put a large amount of uh, budget for the, uh, so to say, development, uh, but the development is not something, development has been growth about in the way, which is not necessarily in accordance with the local, what the local people want. So recently the government is trying to open up an industrial area in the Chana district from Songkhla province, which is still part of the conflict region. And they try to host, you know, to chase away the local people and open up a huge industrial area. And there, now there are people who are supporting who can you know, get some benefits from the, uh, this project. But uh, according to my observation, most of the local people are against that because they are going to lose. So uh, this is an example that it's always, it's even the development brought by the government can be the reasons of the conflict as well. So this is a, in this uh, in this aspect, the government has not hasn't been careful enough in order to deal with this sensitive issue. This is all new news to me because I haven't read about about any of this online. Because I read that the government is trying to provide development aid to Patani regions and regions in the yes. south, but that aid is yes. not being effective. And I think you explained it really well as to why that aid is not being effective and why those funds are not actually helping local populations on ground. I think the second yeah. question out of this then is, if this is one of the poorest regions in Thailand, how mm -hmm. are the insurgency groups like the BRN actually getting yeah. money? Where do they get the money from? <laughs> how do they generate funds for their activities? Okay, so this is a very good question. And also this has been a big uh, mystery for them, mystery for the researchers as well. So uh, in the past, we know that they um, gathered uh, one baht per day from the members. But uh, as far as I, I, I guess, been published. So uh, at this moment, we have, I have no idea how they uh, try to raise money for the struggle. But at the same time, I also have to agree with the very fact that their struggle is a very kind of economic. So uh, they, use a, they have never used, so to say, military uh, vehicles, and also they do not have the regular army. Or even if they have a regular army, the number is very extremely small, right? Unlike in the past. So now their, their strategy seems right. They try to sustain their own struggle but in a low-cost way, as low as possible. So this is my understanding. But at the same time, where the money comes from is a, another good question. And also in this aspect, I, I suppose that one of these souls must be uh, the money they can earn from Malaysia. And also there could be some uh, money collection from uh, in the region. So, uh, and also for your information, in this region, although the GDP itself is very low, but uh, hundreds of thousands of people going to Malaysia in order to work in restaurants. So the accurate number is not known because uh, quite a few of them go to, the, go to Malaysia quite legally, actually. And only uh, some portion of them are registered as a migrant labor. And uh, most of them are kind of legal labor. And uh, they also generate some, some amount of money, which is not uh, documented. Many, many kind of the economic statistics in Thailand. So uh, there are some kind of unknown parts in terms of the economy in this region. 
and also there are some uh, some people say that uh, they get money from the uh, illegal businesses or the uh, drug dealings. But as far as I know, this is highly unlikely. I wouldn't deny the very fact that some members are involved in this kind of illegal business, but it's not them in the organization way. Because um, basically, you have to know the local influential people who are local mafias in order to conduct these. And uh, in some cases, like in the, some border areas, illegal, you know, the uh, illegal uh, petrol imported uh, smuggled from Malaysia are openly sold. So if this is the money, you know, the uh, financial resource for the insurgents, it's impossible for them to sell in this way. Uh, all we know, I, I am, I'm, I'm very sorry that I can answer your question directly because I'm afraid that no one can answer in a very precise way, except to who are in charge of the uh, financial affairs of the, these insurgents. Uh, but what I, I might say is that uh, they still uh, try to keep the struggle as, uh, you know, so to say, not costly, as uh, cheap as possible. And uh, for this reason, they expanded uh, their own uh, kind of a regular, regular army, which they used to have in the 80s and 90s. But they, uh, at this moment, I'm quite sure, the number is very, very limited. And uh, now they use the strategies of the uh, terrorism or by using violence in the cities and also in the roadsides rather than encountering the forest or in the mountains regions. That's interesting. And I'm glad you mentioned the drug trade and the, the implication that people think that they might be involved in illegal activities and illegal smuggling. Because yeah. from what I've read, even the government, the previous government before Prayut, thought that the mm -hmm. Deep South was responsible for a lot of illegal trade and a lot of illegal drug trafficking across the border. How has yep. the Thai government's war on drugs affected Patani populations and has the military presence increased mm -hmm. since the war on drugs and has that made it harder to achieve peace in the region? In my observation, the drug problems and also insurgency is a totally different, different matter, which is, has some, some kind of connection, but it's basically it's a different, different sources, different reasons, and also for different actors. So uh, in, this, uh, in this aspect, of course, you know, in this region, there are so many uh, smuggling. Uh, this is very true. For instance, smuggling the uh, petrol from Malaysia and also smuggling the cigarettes from Indonesia because in this region, the Indonesian cigarette is very popular. Uh, but at the same time, it's also interesting that in this region, there are hardly any uh, human trafficking, unlike the opposite side of the border. So this is the east coast of Thailand, right? Whereas the most of the um, human trafficking, like the Rohingyas and so on, happen in the west side. So um, this is another indicator, the indi indication that who are involved in the, this kind of human trafficking. I wouldn't say who, I wouldn't point out who, who it is. But in the area where the state control cannot fully reach, there has been very small or hardly any human trafficking. But the illegal business are conducted in some other things, like uh, goods, rice, cigarettes, petrol, and so forth. Okay. And mm -hmm. I want to shift slightly away from this and talk a bit about the relationship of the people of this region and the military of Thailand, because yeah. obviously the military is a big player in the peace process of the Deep South and the Deep South insurgency. What are mm -hmm. the military's attitudes towards Malay Muslim people in the South? Are they generally mm -hmm. aggressive or do they want to try talking out to a peaceful resolution? So I must say the, the, the relationship between the state authority, the state security force, with the local people has never been good. If you look at any book, 
written uh, by the uh, observers, you will never find anything except uh, government propaganda which says we have established uh, kind of rapport or good relationship with each other. But in, in fact, it has never been good. So I wouldn't, uh, it is, in the past, it's not the army, but it was rather like the police, of, uh, police which was been uh, feared by the local people. And recently it changed into the military, right? But basically these, uh, the local people see them as the security forces, which uh, basically there is no difference because they are for the security and also from the state, right? So in the past it was mainly the police. The reason is very simple because Especially, especially since the 2004, the situation has been even worse, in my opinion, because they are now using two special laws. One is called the martial law, and second is called the emergency decree. The emergency decree has become uh, quite popular uh, for those who are closely observing Thailand, because the uh, central government is now using this decree in order to control the situation, or, uh, to put it very frankly, to control or to, uh, you know, to deter the uh, student demonstrations. But in the South, these two laws have been used for more than 15 years, almost from the beginning of the uh, insurgency in 2004. And the problem is that under this, uh, so to say, draconian uh, special laws, the security forces can detain anybody without any warrant for seven days. Actually, this is according to the martial law, right? And uh, detention can be done anywhere. For seven days and this can be extended by the emergency decree for another three days so uh, put it very simply uh, local people totally innocent people it could be can be arrested only because they are a suspect for 37 days without any warrant actually uh, for the emergency degrees a warrant, uh, warrant is needed but the uh, usual procedure is somebody is arrested or detained based on the emergency uh, sorry uh, martial law and detained for seven days. And during these seven days, there is also prepared the arrest warrant for this guy in order to extend his detention based on the emergency decree. And uh, until this day, allegations of torture has, been, has never been stopped. And uh, if you uh, work with uh, human rights lawyers or human rights organizations in this region, there is nobody who can deny the existence of torture done by the military forces. And also there are several, as far as I know, one unnatural death which happened during the detention. So for this reason, uh, it's, I think it's quite natural for the local people to regard the security force of the state rather as a threat, rather than the, uh, their protector or the guardian. Okay, that's really worrying. Um, now my question is to do with what do the Patani people actually want? Like there is clearly unrest, they clearly do not like the way the Thai state has been treating them. What do they want? Do they just want simple recognition? So do they want the Patani language to be recognized in Thailand and more political inclusion? Or do they want a separate state and some degree of autonomy for that region? So this could be varied from one person to another. So for the uh, most extreme guys, Patani must be independent. But for some people are very happy with the Thai state. And also because, because they are part of the distant state, and they can be rich, they can be awful, and they can be anything. So some people don't want to have any change. But in general, I might say, um, not many people are very happy with the current situation. Just like in uh, the other part of the Thailand, that you know, um, they need some kind of justice. So in my opinion, 
this could be wrapped into just one or two words. It could be right to self-determination. So right to self-determination could be just having an elected mayor or partial autonomy or high autonomy or even independence, right? So it's on, on the line of the self-determination, but the degree of what they want could be different, right? So some people just want, um, they, some people can, can accept nothing but uh, independence, but for some people, high autonomy could be enough. For some people, just decentralization or devolution, or even just you know, the status quo. So it could be different. But the recognition of the, uh, so to say, the identity is uh, part of that. So in my opinion, recognition of the uh, first is that in Thailand, in the uh, identification card, the nationality is Thai and ethnicity for everybody is Thai, which is, in my opinion, this is not academic. Academically speaking, this is unacceptable because this uh, Thailand, Thailand has a lot of ethnicity, right? Like Chinese and those are a few tribes and Malays and so on. For instance, I get married with a Thai, uh, Malay Muslim here and she is Malay and I'm Japanese. And uh, my children on the birth certificate, the ethnicity is Thai. It's impossible. My sons, my, my children has no Thai blood actually. It's Malay and Japanese, right? In this case, the state itself is too nationalistic to allow, so to say, genuine diversity. And uh, this kind of stiffness might drive some people become, to become more, uh, so to say, radical. So in this case, in my opinion, the Thai government should be more open to the diversity and also the recognition and so on. Otherwise, my, my, uh, my concern is that this stiff policy might push more people to the extent of the independence or high autonomy or anything like this, rather than the, uh, they are capable of doing any kind of uh, reconciliation or compromise. So under the current situation, it's really highly risky, and also, in my opinion, it's quite unclever for the Thai state to using the iron crystal approach. So at least it's uh, compared to 10 years or maybe 15 years ago, the situation has been improving because now at least even there, is, there has been almost no progress, but we still have the flame of the peace talk, right? And uh, in my opinion, the Thai government shouldn't discard this fragile flame. They have to keep at whatever the cost is. And also, they have to uh, concentrate on this and also uh, make some kind of a significant uh, improvement of the situation by using this flame. Otherwise, I'm afraid that the local people might be more radicalized than now. So correct me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. from the sounds of this, it sounds like the Thai government since the 1960s and 70s has been pushing a policy of Thaiification, which is unifying Thailand under ethnicity and religious terms. And mm -hmm. that has systemically denied people in the south of Thailand and access to their own independent ethnicity or their own independent identity as a separate people. And that is making yeah. people increasingly angry. But yeah. this problem hasn't been a new problem. It's been a problem for the past 50 or 60 years. Why has uh -huh. no international human rights organization noticed this or done anything about this? What is the role of organizations <laughs> such as the UN Human Rights Watch in helping solve this problem in the Deep South? That's a very good question. And also, um, this is a kind of a, I wouldn't, I, I cannot say this is a positive thing, but at least this is something we get after the, this uh, area is covered by the media and also attract international uh, attention. Otherwise, this, could, this region could be swallowed by the type, uh, typification or cyanization or assimilation whatsoever. 
and uh, after the uh, you know there has been so many violent uh, incidents the uh, so at first it's more like you know the uh, people are interested in the cessation of the violence but now people begin to observe more closely and more so to say more in the overall picture to see the problem and they begin to notice that it actually has something to do with the uh, old stories and uh, as I said before this uh, incidents or this uh, human rights problem doesn't happen just in uh, 10 or uh, 15 years ago, but it has been like this for a very long time. And basically, this uh, the issue or the problems of this region has never been fully solved by the state's uh, side. Of course, compared to the past, um, there are some improvements, but there are still so many things which must be done. And in your opinion then, what yeah. is the future for the deep south of Thailand? Do you think that there is a peaceful resolution that is going to come soon because of the current ceasefire? Or do you think the conflict is going to stretch out over another 10 or 20 years? What do you think is going to happen now? It could be in both ways or it could be in a different way as well. So this, in terms of the future, there is no, it's very difficult. It's, in, in my opinion, the prediction of the, uh, this region is far more difficult than the, uh, predicting the uh, results of, of the <laughs> 10 years later. So everything can happen. But uh, in my opinion, the Thai state at least begin to learn something. So they are not as harsh as before. And also the Thai state, so to say, so to say, I wouldn't say they're good, but you know, at least so to say, more lenient compared to some other governments in this region. So they are still capable of talking all talking with uh, insurgents, still capable of uh, adapting their policies and so on. So for instance, in the past, they are careless enough to meddle with Islamic things or religious issues. And then the people could unite together, fight against the uh, anti-Islamic government. And at that time, the Thai government was anti-Islamic. But at this moment, I must say, Thai government has not been hostile to the uh, religion itself. So this is a, a kind of government which is capable of changing. Right, and also uh, depending on the uh, to what extent. So uh, even this uh, region is a very unique, but at the same time, this is a part of Thailand. So uh, if you look at the uh, history of this region, you can see clear link between what's going on in the center and also what's going on in this region as well. So for instance, if the Thailand become more nationalistic, more you know, military oriented, and more like so to say, more like Burma or Myanmar. And then in that case, the conflict will never, never stop. But if the Thailand genuinely can become more democratic and respect human rights and uh, acknowledgement of diversity and so on, in that case, the uh, conditions which enables the conflict itself also can be reduced or even can be solved. So it's depending on so many things. But the, one of the main factors is uh, what Thai government could be in the, in the future. So the, in my opinion, the, uh, the future condition hugely depending on this as well, and also the uh, Malay people as well. But mainly, this is still part of the highly centralized country called Thailand. So I'm sure that uh, any solution, any feasible solution, cannot happen per se in this region. But it has something very strong connection with what's going on in the center. And how important is a stable central government in helping resolve this conflict? Because the Thai government, as you've also mentioned has been overthrown several times by several different coup d'etats and there are protests mm -hmm. going on currently as well. How important mm -hmm. is a stable center to coming towards a solution in the South? Yeah, 
So in this aspect, I mean, the, the, we have to be careful on, on, on two points. One is that the uh, central government should be stable and also, should, in my opinion, should be democratic, right? So it's a, we need a very strong or stable uh, democratic government, which is not meddled by the interference of the military or some other extra judicial things, right? This is the first thing. But at the same time, the central, the power is too centralized in Bangkok. It's amazing. Even Thailand is uh, centralized in almost everything, not only power, but also wealth, population, and so on. Everything is in Bangkok, right? So um, it's depending on the two things. First is the strong government, strong democratic government, also to say stable government. But at the same time, this government should also be serious in terms of the decentralization. So they have to give up something given to the, the region. For instance, the decision-making or the governance power, including the budgets as well. Now almost 70% of the entire budget is spending Bangkok compared to the other region. So it's ridiculous. So in my opinion, this is another, another crucial issue for the solution of the uh, conflict, which has been killed more than 7,000 7, people in, uh, in the last 16 years. And just lastly, before I let you go, are there any media sources like books or news media sources that you can recommend to our listeners to help better understand the insurgency in the Deep South in Thailand and the conflict of the Deep South? Um, unfortunately, uh, in uh, English, the uh, source is uh, very limited, but maybe you can follow certain websites like uh, Pracha Thai, the news agency called Gunnar News, or uh, Thai English papers like uh, especially the Bangkok Post and so on. Although the uh, coverage is not very, not very wide enough or deep enough, but at least you can follow. And also, if you are interested in this region, what I can recommend is that uh, try to search from the net and also some other things. Um, you can find quite a few articles which you can read free uh, about this region. Actually, this region is a very interesting region. So, for, uh, and also, uh, things are, many things are written in three languages, in English, in Bahasa Malay, and also in uh, Thai. So in my opinion, this is a very highly overstudied <laughs> region. So it's quite interesting, and you can find the very different sources. But in terms of the uh, current development, it's still quite difficult. Uh, but um, try to follow these, uh, especially Gunnar News, and also if you read Thai, uh, Isara News Agency is another, another selection. Uh, but um, I'm very sorry to acknowledge that uh, at this moment, the in, uh, information uh, gateway is still quite limited. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shintaro. It's been incredible having you and I've loved learning more about the Deep South insurgency and hopefully for the people on ground, development and a peaceful solution will come soon as a result of this ceasefire. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. On another unrelated note, a friend of mine is working with this organization called Standpoint India. The organization is trying to build fora for better discourse on politics, economics, social justice, and society. And they're running a course on public diplomacy and soft power along with the India Foundation. Deadline for registration of this course is the 11th of November, and I encourage all of you to check it out because it looks rather interesting and might be a good start if you want to enter fields such as diplomacy and international relations. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Matterfile, and I hope to see you next time. This has been about the Deep South in Thailand. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. 
My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.